And we're going to get started with uh, a track from my second CD. It's called McDonald's Mourn, and it actually uses a bit of the tune, um, the Glengarry's March, uh, in, in the actual track. And the other interesting thing about this is that Matt Griffin, who's teaching our music history class starting in six days, which is going to be a really, really good class, but uh, he and I collaborated on this album together. So um, he's playing all the guitars, and I'm doing all the bagpipes and drums, and um, so he was a huge part of the second project. So um, it's kind of cool, and if you haven't heard my music before, um, you'll certainly find it a little bit different. So um, without further ado, here it goes, and we'll give people a, a chance to sign in here.
Yeah, that last note kind of goes on for a while. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> I don't know. That brings back good memories. That was good times. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, so that was a, a piece that I wrote. Uh, it's called McDonald's Mourn, and it sort of fits into um, – it fits into – um, a narrative that we constructed about um, an interesting period of history, um, sort of a clan warfare between the McDonald's, who were the mega, the mega clan, and then the Mackenzies, who were uh, much smaller, and sort of various land battles. And uh, the story sort of culminates with the, uh, at least as legend has it, with the burning of um, the. Uh, Gil Creest, which is a church um, in Miravord in Scotland, and um, I actually, uh, I actually went. I actually, you know, we had recorded the album, and we were, you know, doing various sorts of research and so on. Close the door there. Doing various uh, bits of research here and there, and. Um, decided to go try and find where the church was. And, and uh, it, was, it was just this sort of um, <clears throat> abandoned church um, in the yard of somebody's house. And um, we just sort of drove in and sort of looked at the church. And then the people that lived at the farm came out and said, you know, what can we help you with? And, uh, and we said, well, you know, we're looking for uh, this church, Gilcreist, where, you know, legend has it that, uh, uh, and how the legend goes is the McDonald's surrounded the church and burned everybody inside. That's sort of the, the legend, um, which is pretty interesting. And, you know, so we were trying to figure this out and find a church, maybe looking for a good photo op. But this was sort of a more modern church, and apparently it had been rebuilt uh, at least once. And around the back, there were lots of Mackenzie graves, which is really cool. Uh, but anyway, um, they said, well, we don't know much about this church. We just live here. And, uh, but they did give me the number of the local historian who, um, uh, together with her husband had compiled lots of local history and stuff. And so we went one day and we had tea with them and they sort of explained that, um, the whole thing is definitely, um, difficult to confirm. And most people think is a legend. Um, but she was going into, uh, you know, interesting sort of ghost stories and how certain people won't go near that area and, I think it's because something terrible happened there. Anyways, so um, that album project, it was sort of like a, a concept album that we were working on and just trying to paint a little bit of the legend with music there. So um, that's what we were doing. And um, so that's sort of the story there behind uh, behind that. I don't know if Carl, Carl, are you out there somewhere today? You know you're the then today. Yeah, I'm here. It's, uh, it's neat. Um, that's neat. I can tell you weren't paying attention. No, I, I hadn't heard the, um, the story behind that album before. Uh, I've, of course, listened to it, but uh, I hadn't heard the, the background to that, so that was interesting. Yeah, the CD is definitely available. I don't know, Carl, did we ever, have we ever gotten it up on pipersdojo.com? It's uh, <laughs> a good question. I'll check. If not, I'll add it today. Um, there are many, 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 many 
many CDs here at the store. So uh, we can absolutely get that out to you, Kent. Um, and uh, if it's not on the store now, it will be by the end of the day. Um, I will double check that. Yeah, so um, cool. Well, uh, so Vin is out today. Um, he had some uh, medical stuff that he had to take care of. Um, nothing, nothing major, but his schedule didn't quite work out, and stuff got rescheduled on him. So, um, so he's not able to be here today. So you're stuck with boring old me. Um, and uh, <clears throat> and what I thought I'd do today is maybe go over a couple things that we've been talking about at Dojo University, and. Um, you know, a, a couple of things that have come up throughout the week for me that, that are interesting to talk about, just sort of general um, philosophical things. And then, um, yeah, later we've got some other stuff planned. And uh, we've got another really awesome piece of music for the end of the show, so hopefully you'll stick around for that. Um, the first thing I'm going to bring up on the screen um, is a really cool thing that I found in a totally non-bagpipe-related um a totally non-bagpipe related uh, place, but it's totally related to um, to bagpiping. And I brought up this image on the screen. And what it's sort of documenting here is um, sort of stages of competence. Okay, and um, when when we're learning the bagpipes and and when we're playing, you know, obviously we want to become competent uh, with our music making. I think that's pretty obvious. And um, generally, whenever we do something, we want to become competent at it. Um, driving is another good example. And so um, I found this diagram, which is actually really interesting. And it's totally the process under which you learn um, the vast majority of your piping and just in general. And I thought it was really fascinating. So um, for those who are listening, obviously, you can't see the diagram. But we're going to start here. It's, it's sort of arranged in a square. And it starts um, it sort of starts at a stage called unconscious incompetence. And um, if you can think about what that might mean, so um, let's say uh, a good example, and Carl, I don't know if you could think of anything better, but I'm kind of thinking about uh, the dethrow right now. and um, I'm thinking about players who play a sloppy D throw, but they're not even really aware that it's sloppy. They're, they're not even thinking about um, the D throw and uh, how to play it properly. Um, do you know any players like that? Yeah, many. <laughs> um, I think I was kind of one of these players, actually. Even though my D throw was uh, culturally acceptable, um, it wasn't really controlled, and I wasn't really conscious of the idea. And I remember, um, you know, Jack Lee sort of coming after me about my D throws at one point. And so this is a good example for pipers is a lot of times your D throw is terrible, but you, you don't even realize it yet. Right. It's no one's really told you or mentioned or, or, you know, it hasn't really crossed your mind that what you're playing isn't really a D throw. Here's like, you know, a classic example. Right? Who has a D throw that sounds like that? Right? So, you know, something like that. And as far as you, you know, um, 
it sort of seems like a D throw, but it's really not. You're really not con uh, controlling any of those elements. And so anyway, uh, the first step here is to develop um, a consciousness surrounding the fact that you're incompetent at something. Okay, so uh, where I'm going with this is, okay, I, now I realize that my D throw is not correct. So now you're conscious of it and you are, you know, and you start to educate yourself as to how to become competent with the D throw. All right, so, um, <clears throat> so now you're conscious of the D throw and you're saying, okay, what are the three steps? Well, for a light D throw, there are three steps. Right, those are the three steps, low G, D grace note to C, and then up to D. And so now you know about this, and it might take you a little while to get it, but eventually you're going to get those three steps, and hopefully, right, if, you, if you're even playing a D throw whatsoever, you certainly should have the ability to play the steps. Play low G, play a D grace note to C, and then go up to D. Um, we all have the ability to do this, at least once we learn the basics of scale navigation and the basics of grace notes. So now we have... Um, the ability to do it, and now we're conscious not only of how to do it, but now we're also becoming competent at doing it, right? And this is the stage where um, we usually digress back into unconscious incompetence. We sort of forget, but uh, what you know, where we are here is okay. We can do it, okay. Right? So uh, if we think about it, we can do it. And if we don't think about it, it slips back into the incompetence. And then the final step is once you do something uh, consciously and competently for long enough, now you become competent uh, unconsciously such that you just automatically play a D throw correctly every time. And that's sort of the pathway that we're going through when we learn fundamentals. And it's, it's interesting. It's like, I wonder if we've been going through this step, these steps unconsciously, right? Because we're used to learning. We're used to this process. Um, so, and I think there are millions of other things in life that, um, you know, that sort of follow this pathway, right? Um, I don't know. Driving's not a great example. Or maybe it is. Oh, but uh, backing up the car is. Think about the first time you backed a car up. It's almost nerve-wracking and uncomfortable. And then you get better at it and better at it. And eventually, you can whip the car out of the driveway without really thinking about it. And you may, I was reading this somewhere recently um, about how your brain actually does this. Um, and, of course, I don't remember where the article came from or exactly what it said, but uh, the, the gist of it was that eventually it has to do with forming habits and um, the, um, the process of forming habits is the same very process that we have here on the screen about the going from uh, unconscious incompetence through each step there and eventually uh, in our forms a habit. 
uh, is backing up the car really on. is backing up the car really uh, unconscious incompetence though because you must be conscious of the fact that you're backing up the car well at the very first time you did it I mean maybe it's conscious incompetence maybe that doesn't have the first step but at any rate um, yeah, like because you're aware that you're not any good at. That's why driving is sort of a weird example. Although here's a great example, though, is uh, how about defensive driving? Right. So um, the idea of driving in a way that's safe and defensive against other bad things happening, right? I think that that counts, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that would count. Because when you're first yeah. driving around, you're just kind of naive and you're just kind of driving, and uh, you're letting all the other things happen, and you're not really thinking about uh, protecting yourself against things that might happen coincidentally or because of another driver's error and you're not even conscious of that and then you take your defensive driver's course and then you develop a conscious incompetence right something that you know about that you need to develop and then uh, at which point you pre you put it into practice on the road and you're constantly thinking about it and then you know at least I think um, I'm unconsciously now competent in regards to defensive driving where I'm just naturally assuming um, that if it can go wrong, it will, right, as I'm driving. Um, yeah, and I see uh, Ken's comment there that he says he thinks he has components of his playing in all four areas, and I would say that's true of any player. Um, you know, you're constantly in the, in the process of reinventing uh, and improving on your technique, and that starts from step one, the unconscious incompetence, and, you know, hopefully you see it through to the, uh, unconscious competence. Yeah, so. and then the other thing I would say, Carl, um, and um, Ken, that's a really good point, is um, you need to, uh, you know, the process of piping. Now, for me, what what I'm hoping to do is I'm hoping to teach my students to bring all of the fundamentals to the unconscious competent stage, right? And, of course, it's a really difficult thing to do. But so all – and we talk about the fundamentals, scale navigation – uh, rhythm, basic rhythm, uh, articulation, dynamics, right? So uh, expression and phrasing and so on, right? So um, when I um, – so if we can get the, these to the point where they're starting to happen naturally without having to think about it, that's the point at which you can really integrate your own voice and ideas into your playing, right? Because that's what you're consciously working on um, putting across, right? So now you're consciously thinking about, all right, now what do I have to say with this too? Um, all right, sorry about that. Just got a private message there. Um, what, was I gonna, what was I saying? So yeah, so the more things that we can get to the unconscious competence stage, um, you know, the the more advanced we can become with our next, like, set of skills, right? And that's, you know, I think that's a, a really important thing to think about. So, Kent, that's a really good point. Um, and then Siri now says, youngsters have a different pathway to their unconscious and conscious mind. Well, I think youngsters go through this, too. Now, unconscious competence happens really fast with young people, but... Um, only in certain areas. So um, the ability to, to train their muscles, right, to, to develop muscle memory happens a lot faster as a kid. Um, the ability to 
mimic other things comes really easily as a kid. But I wouldn't say now as much as kids pick up stuff really fast, right? I wouldn't say that they develop unconscious competence, um, you know, in all areas faster than adults do, right? Because, you know, kids still have to learn to understand what they're doing and that's going to happen later, right? So I, I would say they just learn things in a different order. Does anyone else have thoughts on that? I mean, I'm just sort of talking off the top of my heads there, head there. I don't know, Carl, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel like I've been so far removed from, you know, what I was learning there as, as a kid. And I mean, I think you started pretty early too. I started at seven years old. So, um, you know, that's certainly a little bit of that. But uh, uh, I, I don't know. I, it's hard to think back to, to when I was a kid like that learning, um, whether we really went through those processes. I mean, I think it still happens. Um, you know, you, you eventually learn that basic technique and then that becomes unconscious competence. It's just the process of going from, you know, thinking of the steps of a certain embellishment to actually thinking of it kind of as a, uh, as a unit. Yeah. Um, Carl, I'm not seeing your webcam. Are you, are, are other people seeing Carl? No, I tried. It didn't work. I don't know. Keep going. I'll figure that out. It's Okay. Um, their identity isn't as developed. So, yeah, um, I think, yeah, Siri, it's interesting. You're, you're definitely bringing up an interesting topic that I, I'm not sure I, I have like a quick answer to, but, you know, um, their identity isn't as developed, maybe. And I think mimicking is, right, mimicking and, and influence is really big, but yeah, so at what point does a, a, a younger learner, right, learn to take that, that mimicking ability and really make it something of their own? I would say that that takes, you know, um, that takes, it's quite a process as well. So it's hard to say. Michael Gilbert says, when I add one new thing to my playing, I notice I will revert to an old way of playing something. Yeah, so um, it's it's difficult to add new things, right, without without losing the old ones. And that, that sort of suggests that the, the other things that are um, reverting, right, haven't really fully been taken to the unconscious competence stage, have, have they, right, if they, if they go backwards. Um, and not as, not as far as they need to go, right, which, which means, you know, you really, that's where practice comes in and experience, right? It takes a lot of experience and practice in order to take a fundamental to the stage where it's unconsciously competent. Anyway, um, I don't want to spend all day talking about, um, you know, talking about this this chart. But I, I thought I found it in a, you know, forget where at some blog somewhere, and I thought, wow, that's perfectly related to, you know, what we're doing here with, uh, you know, uh, with uh, teaching pipes and with the dojo and stuff like that. So Carl, we're up to uh, 18 participants, but it doesn't look like we have any guests. Isn't that interesting? But, uh, the registration process worked there. Well, no, what I'm saying is, I don't think it did because it would say that they were a guest. Oh. Um, so these are all Dojo U members. 
Is that true? How many people here are here and they aren't members of Dojo U? Most people are. So we might have to reevaluate how we do that. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> um, so good. Well, um, so that, that was the first thing I wanted to bring up. Um, the next thing was we started a really good conversation in uh, my open dojo session last Thursday. And I know that um, I know Lee was part of that. And maybe I'm going to enable his audio in case he wants to chime in here. Um, but we were kind of talking about um, Lee brought up the really amazing point. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, why doesn't everybody just do Dojo U? Because it's clearly the best possible option for learning the pipes. I think I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Um, but, uh, you know, in all seriousness, we got into a discussion uh, in regards to, um, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of different styles of uh, learning. I heard somebody. Was that Lee? Yeah, it was. I was just turning my mic on to make sure it worked. Yeah, it's yeah, still it's working. Still working. Me, me, um, um, like, do you have your headphones on? Uh, let me grab them and turn my mic off. All right, cool, yeah. I'm just hearing a little bit of feedback there, that's all. Um, anyway, um, it'll, Lee can come on because I know that he was, you know, pretty interested. But what are the different styles of learning? Like, you know, Carl, maybe you can help me out with, you know, uh, I guess we have one-on-one -on -one lessons. Uh, what else is there? Sure, well, there's, there's group lessons. Um, I know some teachers teach that way. Uh, privately in in groups, uh, you can also get that group lesson out of band practice. You know, before band starts, uh, certainly a, a lot of bands I know do kind of beginner lessons before band starts, and those are usually in group sessions. Uh, there's uh, you know kind of tag team teaching. Uh, we did a little of that with the old style dojo. Um, yep. Peer to peer. Uh, kind of learning as well would be another type. Mm. Yeah, teaching styles have changed a lot. I mean, one obvious one, Carl, that I that you missed is the summer school, right? Summer school style, which is very still very popular. Um, and then there's you know piping workshops um, as well. Um, I mean, and one of the things that uh, we got to talking about were were that each of these models has, um, you know, drawbacks. Um, and I'll give you an example. So let's start with summer schools. I mean, uh, summer schools are great. Um, I learned the vast majority of, you know, um, all, all of my piping knowledge and influence in some way because of the piping school. And it's sort of an immersive environment. So what you would do is you would go away to a school and I always went to the Invermark schools as a kid um, with Donald Lindsay and his uh, crack team of bagpiping sleuths, uh, otherwise known as world famous pipers that were there. And it was an immersive environment where, um, you know, you, you literally not only are you taking several classes a day, but you're also hanging out with really good pipers, you're going to workshops, you're getting one on one um, time. And, and there's ton, tons of practicing and jamming going on all week. So it's like a whole week devoted to piping. 
I think that this is by far the best way to learn piping. However, there are several drawbacks, right? The, one of the big drawbacks is the price, right? So not only do you have to travel to the piping school, you have to take time off work, all right? So that's lost productivity and that has a price. There's the price to enter the school, which is usually pretty high because they're flying people in. And, uh, and then the other big problem is that... Um, it happens once a year. That's right. It only happens one week a year, or if you're lucky, maybe two weeks. And then if you're super obsessed, like I was as a kid, there were a few summers where I did three weeks of piping school. I did like a week at the Ontario School with Jim McGilvery, and then I would go to two weeks of Invermark or something like that. So, um, but, and those are major drawbacks. So, you know, it's kind of like, what's the best way to learn French? Well, the best way would be to just go to France and be forced to speak the language for an extended period, immersive period of time. Um, and I think that, um, I think that piping schools really offer that, but of course it's very expensive and it's only that one pocket of time um, in the year. So, um, so even, even the best way of learning has significant drawbacks, right? Um, Carl, give me another one. Like how about one-on-one -on -one lessons? Sure. Well, uh, you, you certainly get a lot of, you know, individualized feedback there, but uh, you don't have, uh, if you don't make the mistake, uh, you have no way of getting any feedback on that. And I know that sounds like a kind of diluted way of saying that, but uh, you miss that group component. You know, uh, you don't have to make a mistake in your own playing to learn something about piping. Uh, right. And that kind of group setting uh, provides that. Say, oh, gee, you know, I don't play a, you know, this movement in the tune that I'm playing, but that person did, and you know, mine is very similar, and it's not very good. You know, you wouldn't have gotten that in a in a private lesson where you're focusing on just you know several tunes or something like that. Um, you, you definitely get that in in a group setting. You know, somebody would be like, you know, play something that that you think is correct and, and the instructor corrects that and it's like, whoa, you know, I had no idea. So you certainly don't get anything like that in, in private lessons. Um, you know, and Carl, I, I think that's an amazing point, by the way. I've never even thought of that, but you're totally right. So just because you're not making a mistake doesn't mean there's not something that needs, that could be learned there, right? So yeah. that's really, really good. My point, my problem with the one-on-one -on -one lesson is that um, uh, is that it's it comes from the knowledge comes from a singular point of view, yeah. right? And um, and you can become dependent, and you, you become dependent on someone else's voice in order to learn, right? That's one of the things that I don't like about it. It's one of the reasons. Um, it's one of the reasons that. Um, you know, I'm, uh, teaching private lessons is not one of my favorite things to do. I do teach a few private lessons here and there locally, but, um, you know, it's, it's a challenging environment because the student sort of shows up and, this, and then the student wants, and I've, and I've done this myself looking back, right, in retrospect, but the student shows up and they want you to give them the answer, right? Here's how to play this. Don't play it like that. Play it like this. Well, I don't want them to play exactly like me. 
I want the student to learn the fundamentals and then to start playing in their own voice as soon as possible. And I think uh, a one-on-one -on -one lesson can sort of counteract that. Um, <clears throat> so, um, so that's one of the major drawbacks of one-on-one -on -one lessons. Lee, I think you're out there somewhere. What do you think? Well, yes, uh, that's where my original question to you uh, stemmed from is I don't currently have a one-on-one -on -one teacher and I haven't had one in about six years. And I was wondering, well, is that a no-no in the piping world? Am I going to get by judges, oh, who's your teacher? I'm like, well, my teacher is, you know, Dojo University School. I'm learning from four to five teachers regularly. And I was wondering, you know, is that one-on-one -on -one in the person's home an antiquated thing of the past? Um, I assume for beginning pipers, you have to have the tactile physically placing their fingers, but at some point when you're not having to physically touch the person's channel, like the new technologies of Skyping, online schools, I feel far superior. I've always thought Dojo was very similar to a piping school, to where you have a group of individuals, everybody kind of takes a turn around the table, you have an instructor who teaches a basic concept or a new tune or a new technique. It's very similar to summer school, except for the added benefit of if you can go there every single day, 360. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think that's, you know, one of the things Carl and I were actually talking over lunch yesterday. We were talking about, uh, uh, I don't think it'll be too long before uh, we we dive into some 24-7 programming. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be able to turn on like a, a, a feed and just, you know, kind of throw it on there, tune out, do whatever else you're doing and, and yeah. uh, you know, just have some Dojo U classes playing in the background and, you know, oh, it's, it's like having the, <laughs> it's like having the TV on. You know, you you don't necessarily pay attention to it if you're doing other topics, but then something will grab you, and you know, if you if you've thrown on a Discovery Channel or History Channel or something, um, it, you know, you learn something from that that little tidbit, and then you go back to whatever you're doing. Uh, but that yeah. certainly a possibility. I love it. HB Dojo. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, um, but. Uh, so yeah, stay tuned. If, if we can figure out how to do it, uh, we're gonna we're gonna do something like that. Uh, so, so you can have so you can have piping school twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, three hundred and sixty five days a year. It's gonna be uh, bagpipe hero challenges. What's a bagpipe hero challenge, Mike? That sounds amazing. You can't get too sidetracked here because we were busy talking about pros and like, oh, yeah, guitar Jesus. <laughs> I'm into it. We need to come up with about a billion dollars to develop a bagpipe hero. Yeah. Donate now to the. <laughs> Siri says, as we know, she cooks while she watches Dojo U. So that's pretty interesting. Um, anyway, um, so Lee, I'm with you. I think um, private lessons are good. Um, but you know, they have certain drawbacks and if you, and a lot of people just stick like glue to one teacher, uh, sometimes it's because the teacher mistakenly demands exclusivity, right? That's the biggest mistake a teacher can ask of a student is that they only go to them and that's it. If your teacher has said that to you, run for your life, uh, or at the very least, just politely decline and say, I would like to experience other points of view, right? Because that's what you need. Every great musician has a variety of influences. And if they don't, 
I would immediately question as to whether or not they're actually a great musician. That would be my humble opinion on the matter. Now, um, what else we have? Skype lessons, right? Same sort of thing. Skype lesson is a one-on-one -on -one environment. And so you're at risk of, of um, sort of pigeonholing your own voice there with that. Where I, you know, so I feel like, now meanwhile, if you got a Skype lesson from different people and you were able to practice regularly and keep things up, that would be, you know, um, uh, that would be a really good thing. You know, one of the things that the top players are doing, like I know Jack Lee does this and a few others, is they'll make recordings of a P-Brock and then they'll send that recording to several mentors. And I'm, I'm not sure who's on Jack's list, but, you know, and they get feedback from all sorts of great P-Brock people. And, you know, as long as they have time, I'm sure, uh, it's probably not all of them get back, but then some of them get back to Jack. And, and so that's pretty cool. We do that here at the dojo in our open dojo session. You know, we have a variety of different teachers that can help you with stuff. And, um, you know, and then we have people like Bruce that are coming on and doing stuff. Yeah, I see Timothy's comment here that in um, private and public schools, uh, you know, a, a general student has many different teachers. And uh, I'd add to that um, that they also switch teachers for you know similar subjects mostly every year, uh, and you're saying that that should the same should be true of piping students. Yeah, I mean we firmly believe that here at the dojo, it's the access to you know a greater wealth of information from different people from different points of view. That's really what's invaluable about it. Yeah, I, I'm with you, and you know I, I I didn't mean for this segment to be. Uh, shameless dojo university marketing, but it, you know, but what we're doing, I think is, is I think we're taking the best of a lot of different worlds and we've brought it together into a product that we believe will be the best, you know? And so, um, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of what we're doing here. And, um, <clears throat> it's free to try if you're out there listening in the world, people free to try. And, uh, and we have four free classes now. Um, have you seen that Carl that I launched that? Yeah, I did see that. It's on our on our homepage now on the Dojo. Uh, you can sign up to get four free Dojo U classes. Yeah, and so. and they're catered to your ability level. So when you request the classes, you you say uh, what type of piper you are, and then we send you classes that are sort of um, you know built for the type of player you are. So uh, we have we have beginners, we have people who are transitioning to the pipes, um, we have people who. Uh, experienced looking for the next level and we even have pipe major pipe major people you know that that are looking for solutions for their bands which you know is something we're really big on so um, so yeah thanks Lee for that suggestion I'm talking about that um, it was it's been a little bit of a dull news week did anything go on over the weekend that I should know about and talk about any big contests or anything I think uh, you know, other than the USPF, which Jimmy Bell reigns victorious. Uh, it's funny. I, I know Jimmy was at a school. They had a school last week, and I'm sure he was working hard. And, man, that guy's great, especially when he's well prepared. The guy can really, really play. Um, sort of somebody – somebody not – it's a pepper not a lot of people know about as being really good, but, um, you know, plays great P-Brock and, um, you know, frankly – really good light music too. Um, so um, it was good to see him get a prize. And I know Alex Gandy was a very close runner up. 
I think Jimmy only won because Alex was second in the P-Brock, so um, if, I, if I saw the results correctly there. Um, okay. Um, the last thing, we're going to listen to one more piece of music, and it's actually quite a long piece, and that's actually going to wrap up the show for today. Um, you know, because it's a slow news week, we decided we'd just play a lot of music. Um, and so the next piece is going to be um, sort of a, another fusion piece. And it's another fusion piece that uses P-Brock's, you know, a, a well-known P-Brock as part of it. So I thought we'd kind of tie the music together. Um, this uh, piece is by a guy named Martin Bennett, who if you haven't heard of him, um, you know, you should definitely check him out. If, I'm not um, – I've never been able to really get into his music. You know, I've, I've never sort of – the stars have never really aligned for me to get in there and study and, uh, you know, really listen hard to his stuff. But I know that what I have heard is really excellent. And certainly the piece that I'm going to play today is a, a masterpiece. And it's called Mackay's Memoirs. And uh, basically – uh, I'm not quite sure of the story of it, but it, it's a collage of a lot of different um, sort of Scottish culture and music. Carl, are you chiming in like maybe you know more about this than I do? No, no, I don't. Uh, yeah, it, it's really – I'm not – have you even heard it before, Carl? I haven't. This will be the first time, so uh, quite interesting. This is where I wish Vin was here. Vin would be able to give me a five-minute dissertation on, the, uh, on the, this piece, but it's really cool. It uses a lot of different components. Um, and focuses on the P-Brock. And what's interesting um, is that this piece was played, um, I believe it was the opening of Scottish Parliament in 1999. That's what I believe it was. So um, sort of a big moment in Scottish history, and, uh, and this piece was played, and it was uh, commissioned um, from him. And uh, it was recorded very shortly after Martin's death. Uh, Martin Bennett died very young of uh, cancer. He had a, uh, he was diagnosed really like I think, um, and I was just sort of checking my facts a little bit earlier. And what did I write down? Uh, he was diagnosed with testicular cancer, um, I, I believe, just as he was graduating uh, the Royal Academy of Music. Yeah, I'm just reading my notes here. Um, and he was very, you know, he was very stifled by the classical music world, right? And sort of, he, and he sort of, um, you know, delved into a lot of modern stuff. His most successful record, for example, was a, um, uh, you know, was sort of electronica dance type music uh, that he integrated bagpipes into. So anyway, this is a much different piece. Um, and let me uh, load it up here. There is, of course, the issue that it, it, it uh, hopefully the recording came out well. I wasn't actually able to check it. Um, so th this will take a little uh, a moment or two to upload because it, um, it's, it's quite long, but uh, I really like this piece. Does anyone out there know more about Martin Bennett or maybe... Um, it's possible that maybe you even got to know Martin a little bit, um, but his music's really cool. Just waiting for this too. 
That's interesting. That uh, his album was released on Eclectic Records. So he's uh, Bothy Culture is that that record that he did that was really famous that uh, I was thinking about. All right, let's see if this. Uh... I will. Good. Okay. So um, I'm actually going to turn off my microphone and we'll just exit this show here this week um, with Mackay's Memoirs by Martin Bennett. And we'll see you next week. And uh, we'll have to fix the um, uh, we'll have to fix the entry for next week so it's easier for people to get in because it doesn't look like we have a lot of guests here. Uh, but uh, we'll do that. So, uh, you know, until next week, we'll see you again. And uh, oh, before I play the recording, don't forget Jack Taylor, special event with Jack Taylor for premium members, Saturday morning at 11 a.m. So that's this Saturday. And I just um, uploaded the PowerPoint today. It's very, very cool PowerPoint. And um, Jack Taylor is one of the great PBROC scholars, maybe ever, certainly uh, living at the moment. And he's going to go through brief history of PBROC and then where PBROC is going to go in the future. And so uh, even if you don't know anything about PBROC, I highly recommend that you check it out because um, you're going to learn a lot of stuff that at uh, Jack Taylor's class that um, you won't get anywhere else. I can promise you that much. So anyway, here's uh, Mackay's Memoirs, which includes um, uh, the ground of Mary McLeod. It features, featured heavily in this piece. So um, go ahead, enjoy it, and we'll see you next week. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. Indian pipe, the tone of the flute, and its voice is only lifted in the wailing, mournful, haunting strains of music. And the mourning of the music for the glory that was and is no more strings meets no translation to those who have all sending great sorrows succeed to music never long forgets the loved ones drown. Every day in music is sent to music of one seldom seen. It's Kent's tradition. Music of the sea, which the heavens see sorrowing. It's like the theme in the working out of the people. Ancient Incumbent Pipe with the
tone of the flute, and his voice is only lifted in the wailing, mournful, haunting strains of music.
There is one other, seldom seen, heard in the evenings from many mysterious corners. Plaintive, but sweet and truly melodious. It is the ancient Indian pipe, the tone of the flute, and its voice is only lifted in the wailing, mournful, haunting strains of music. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. Amen. Uh -huh.